0: And we are live with our 63rd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson, at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, can you believe we've done 63 of these? Or this I cannot.
1: 63rd? Yeah, this is the 63rd episode. That's, it feels crazy to me. I look through the list and I'm like, holy crap, how did this happen, right? But welcome once again Uh We've got a great guest tonight. I know we were off last week. We promised something. But again, the super professional podcast that we are. Life happened. and But we, we came back. That's the important thing. Um, yeah, the, the one big announcement that we've got this week is that uh, Seth and Ken's Excellent Adventure and Secure Code Review will be at AppSec USA. We did get accepted. So if you're going to be out there, please consider us for training uh, if you want to learn more about secure coding techniques, how we go about it, what we do. Uh, it's, I, I mean, it's the same course that we taught at AppSec Day with our, uh, our guest today at Julian, but it's been a, a really fun course for Ken and I to do and kind of share our knowledge around. So uh, look for us there. Uh, otherwise, I think we're going to jump right into uh, talking with Julian today because uh, the AppSec Minute and other things that we've got are relevant to the discussion with him. So Julian, yeah. you want to say hello? You want me to, want me to introduce him?
2: Yeah. Oh, sure, go for it.
0: <laughs> so Julian is a principal security engineer at Seek. We are going to get into what he does and some of the lessons he's learned and the things he can share with us. Uh, but Julian has worked on the consulting side uh, as well as like having done IT and software engineering, which I thought was a really cool uh, we'll get into it, but I thought that was really cool that he started um, sort of those like fundamental uh, roles before getting into you know AppSec and consulting and all that. So, um, but he's an organizer of AppSec Day Melbourne in Australia. And by the way, I learned this ye- or last year that it was Melbourne because I don't I didn't know I thought it was Melbourne that's the way i said it
2: before <laughs> melbourne is normally how we get it but it's fine it doesn't really offend us too much we're, we're not easily offended
0: <laughs> awesome perfect because i tried really hard but i forgot a few times so i'm glad you guys aren't easily offended um i'm offended for you Ken, you're offended you know? yeah <laughs> on julian's behalf
1: on julian's behalf there you go perfect so, and
0: also he's uh, one of the code chapter leads of a of OWASP uh, Melbourne as well. So um, Julian, uh, thank you for joining us. You actually, are, you provided one of the two things that we're we're going to talk about tonight, which I figure we can jump right into before we, because we are going to talk about your background, what you do, all that. But before we get into that, you had shared this uh, Lodash um, vulnerability that was released and, um, what I thought was interesting about it is that we, so we did basically, we, we've been going through with the AppSec Minute, um, once a week or sorry, one of the, the top 10 for Port Swigger, uh, we go through a week and I don't know if it was like late ep, one of the was like episode. I don't know, 57, 58, maybe something like that. Um, we talked about prototype pollution, uh, where it's basically like metaprogramming, um, using JavaScript. And so that's essentially the, like what this um, Lodash vulnerability is that you, uh, that you gave. I mean, I don't know if you have, any, if you have anything to add to that. Oh,
2: um, well, it's just I interesting because gonna... I was going to say it was just posted like eight hours ago. I don't, I don't think there's a patch for it yet. Um, and I think the, um, one of the devs in, our, in, in at Seek where I work posted in our channel. So it was interesting that they're getting that kind of information as well pretty, pretty early.
0: Oh wow! So the developers brought it to your attention.
2: Yes, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which I can talk about a little bit because, um, yeah, I mean it's pretty awesome that we get that kind of information from them directly.
0: Yeah, no, 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 definitely. Like, uh, well, clearly you've you've established a pretty good relationship uh, with your developers, but this is um, lodash is used fairly widely. I want to, uh, as,
2: far <laughs> yeah, as just I know, a little bit. So there's yeah. uh, ninety four thousand dependents on the lodash yeah. library. If you look at the npm. Hey
1: ninety four thousand uh,
2: yeah no, and then this week alone there was about twenty million downloads twenty one million downloads so it's a tiny bit in use in the JavaScript world <laughs>
0: <laughs> just a little bit yeah uh, this is yeah, and it's pretty i mean it's a pretty like straightforward um I was like, so there there was a link I don't know if i I think that it's not it's what you said, I don't know if it's patched, but there are two patches that this developer um and sorry, let me actually. Did, did we put it in the live chat, Seth? Yeah.
1: I, oh, I haven't put it in the live chat yet. I'll drop it oh, in okay. right now. Sweet. Cool, cool. I, I put yeah. in the, the link directly to the sneak, sneak, whatever, however you say it, uh, vulnerability, because it's it's pretty,
2: yeah, it's pretty awesome. Easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that was a previous similar one in Lodash. Um, so it might not be the, the most recent one. So I think that was just a previous one, just to get an idea of what the impact could be and things like that. So I'm not sure if they've released the... Yeah, I could be wrong, actually. Yeah, so that one was published in February. So this was another one that's been disclosed.
1: Oh, okay. So the one that I dropped in there is the actual one from February?
2: But it's basically the same vulnerability as far as I can tell from the GitHub issues. (laughs) So it's a little bit confusing. A little bit too... Maybe the announcement was a bit too (laughs) premature.
1: Too premature.
2: (laughs) Um, but it seems like remote code execution for this kind of pollution vulnerability is pretty unlikely unless you're using things like eval, which you know a lot of people potentially would. Um, and the most common type is actually denial of service, which depending on your risk appetites, you know could be worse or not Depends. yeah, definitely like
0: what what, what oh, yeah what's your what's your risk profile? Yeah, and I mean it's a it's a pretty like straightforward. When I'm looking at the the patches, I'm kind of seeing that it's it's pretty straightforward. It's um, pretty straightforward fix, basically. It's like um, we just check if the uh, object type is a constructor, and uh, if it's yeah, and if it's a function, like if the type of it, it equals function, then return. Um, so it's like basically. If this is unsafe, you know, which, yeah, that's unsafe. You're def- you're defining code at runtime, right? Um, so remote code execution, uh, that's pretty dangerous.
2: Yeah, I feel like uh, another reason to move into something like TypeScript or something like that that's uh, type safe because I feel, I'm, I'm not sure, don't quote me on this because I haven't used TypeScript a lot, but this seems very specific to JavaScript given that, that that kind of fix very heavily goes into, like, making sure it's a function and that kind of thing rather than, off. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, Seth, yeah
0: the were you the one that sent me that? Sorry, I, I think Seth. Were you the one that sent me the thing where like it was the talk of like a JavaScript developer that had like several different operators like equals, 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 three equals, four equals, <laughs> five equals. I feel like was that you yeah. that sent that?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a talk that I was in. I can't remember. It it might have been just a. a developer meetup, I think, down in Silicon Valley, down in San Francisco at one point. But it was, yeah, it's super interesting because it's all like the different ways that you can basically shoot yourself in the foot uh, just by using the equal sign because each one is a completely different function, right? The way it does comparisons, what it's doing. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, the fix is super interesting. It's not they're actually fixing the code. It's just basically checking whether or not it is a constructor, right? If the key's a constructor, then don't do this. Otherwise, it's okay. Which makes me think they're playing whack-a-mole. That's what it feels like, but...
0: Those types yeah. of fixes, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. You, yeah. you are essentially doing a blacklist, right? At that point, you're yeah. not whitelisting and saying, like, only this type, this object type, could you know be passed in or something like that.
1: I, I mean, it's pretty safe because constructor or proto... Yeah, I mean, we could get into the, the the fine level detail, but I don't think we necessarily need to. It's just interesting that that's the way that they have to go about it. So, like, what to Julian's point, that you're probably better off using a safer language if you are attempting to do some of this stuff than sticking with JavaScript. But you know, yeah, to each his own. Right.
2: <laughs> I think the yep. the whole like proliferation of um, MPM modules and the craziness that kind of goes about how many dependencies and how much you know, code you actually inherit within your own applications is just crazy. Like we've done, a, did a hackathon uh, later last year with a few of the devs at Seek um, mm-hmm. on just like doing some analysis on the different libraries. Like this lodash one is a perfect example. Um, there was like a Facebook library as well where it had like thousands of dependencies and, like, one of them, um, you know, had, like, one contributor or, like, what what kind of risk profile does it take for the transient dependencies? Like, one developer needs to get hacked, and then all of a sudden you have 90,000 other libraries that have this, like, malicious code in it. It's pretty crazy. And that's kind of live in production in a lot of scenarios. So, yeah, it's an interesting kind of world we live in at the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying yeah. to find this from Adam Baldwin where he talked about, I want to say it was like so I said, 962,000 published packages.
1: And he said, This, this was the talk at Locomocosec, right? Where he correct a number of dependencies. Yeah. He said, I don't remember what the, I'm trying to remember the percentage.
0: It was something like 97% of applications, node applications are third, are comprised of third party dependencies. Yeah. Yeah. I can't that find that right. slide, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't find it, but yeah, that's 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 basically what he uh, yeah he put out there. I was like, that's insane, but it does sound right. Yeah, that's tough. So, did you guys want to talk about the uh, the other thing, Boeing seven thirty seven Max software?
1: Yeah, this one was interesting as well. Right, this just you want to fill up. people on it, in on it, Seth? Uh, well, basically, it came out. If you want to post the links, right. Uh, But it came out just within the last couple of days that the developers of of the software that goes into the Boeing 757 Max, or I mean, I think a lot of the Boeing machines or the Boeing aircraft is actually contracted out to developers that are only getting paid something like $10 an hour or less, right? So these critical systems are being developed for less than we're paying people to work at McDonald's. Right. That's, yeah. That's realistically what it boils down to.
2: It, yeah. It is interesting. I, I, um, I just had a read through it as well, when you sent me the link before, and it, it seems like, and you, know, you have to take their word for it, I guess, but they claim that the critical kind of maneuverability systems and that the critical kind of parts of the plane weren't designed by, those particular contractors, but you know, it's like kind of hard to to really believe them when they also say, like, during this all staff meeting with thousands of senior engineers in the room or hundreds, there was a quote of like, "We don't need any senior people anymore because our software is mature." Uh, yeah. So when you have yeah. like CEOs or whoever it was that state that kind of stuff in in front of a massive audience of all these engineers, um, that, that's that's ringing some alarm bells.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, the the other thing is that like the um, there was uh the, one of the employees said that basically like through this outsourcing um the software continued to degrade and I know that they found I know that there was another flaw found which is why they're con- they continue to be grounded but I think that there were like there were tests run by the Federal Aviation Administration that um basically show like uh a whole sequence of maybe not like critical but like flaws in the code that they've discovered and you've got that in tandem with this this like these employees from boeing saying like oh yeah once we started outsourcing um softwares continued to 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 degrade uh and it is like it is like a house of cards right like it has to be built like every piece has to be built well you know and if there's shoddy software i mean like that has a chain effect so i think it's also hard to believe because of that like that that from from well, my perspective, uh, yeah.
1: That, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all it all funnels up to the people that are managing the project as a whole, right? Like, quality is not just like we know this in software. We know this in other engineering fields that quality is not just one piece, right? It, it's the it's the unit as a whole, and I, like if you can't make it happen with the the simple simple functions then the ability to control the whole machine or the whole the whole product that it's going to suffer. Uh, like it, that that this whole thing harkens back to the uh, the Hertz debacle with Accenture. Uh, I don't know if we talked about that on the podcast as well. I don't think yet. we have. No, 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 I don't. So this was a couple months ago. Hertz actually sued Accenture for breach of contracts because they couldn't they. Uh, they were contracted by Hertz to redevelop their whole online presence, their mobile apps, everything all the way that consumers interact with Hertz to actually book cars and Accenture failed completely. Right. Cost overruns just, and like Accenture is one of the big accounting firms that's supposed to be able to do this development, but they, you know, they outsourced things and they just couldn't put it together. Uh, Let me, let me post the link really quick. Um, but they were sued for like thirty-two billion dollars for breach of contract because of what happened. Um, but it's a similar type thing, right? That the management lets things spin out of control and doesn't actually put it together in a a good way, right? You're 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 chasing to the bottom, kind of this hey, we need developers, but we want the cheapest possible to developers that can develop just the bare minimum of what we need. And it doesn't always piece together like you expect it to. Uh, So I I don't know in the case of Hertz if that's exactly what happened, uh, but it feels very similar in as far as the code quality uh, and that code and application delivery is not just the the application source code itself it's the it's the whole process it's that whole software development lifecycle that we're always talking about if you don't get that right it doesn't matter like what's going to come out the end is probably going to be subpar
2: sorry I'm going kind of rant. I was no sorry I was going to say like do you think it stems from the fact that um, a lot of industries are moving towards like highly software like software is eating the world that kind of expression that a lot of people have been touting recently um And you have these companies that have historically been not software companies and now they're forced into this world of being a software company
1: uh-huh. and
2: then management and the whole process around it, they don't really know how to deal with and they don't understand the concepts of like what software is or they don't understand the value of good engineers and what they can provide to a longer term success, like that kind of thing. It seems like Silicon Valley obviously started from a base level of only software, whereas yeah. you have and then their founders and all that kind of stuff are very technical. Um, so they just inherently get what a quality engineer can provide and the difference between someone who's getting paid nine dollars an hour um, versus someone who's who's not right. Because one of the quotes in the article is related to the fact that it was getting too expensive to hire local people to do the software delivery. Um so that kind of indicates that they don't have very good ways of measuring quality within their employ like their employers, and they don't understand the benefits of that quality over over the long term. So I, I feel like that's probably crux of it
0: yeah and they yeah. also quoted in that article that they sent back that that it was very common to to multiple times send back the code because it would like it had flaws and it, and it wasn't working it wasn't even just like we'll say like insecure or like you know poorly written it was like it didn't work and they had that happened multiple times and they had to keep sending it they they said they had a building across from their seat uh, from the seattle like uh branch over there and so they would just like I guess shoot it across the, to that building and say like, this is still messed up and that kept happening. So what's the cost of that? You know, what are the costs of those delays? And, th- and then sadly you see also talking about quotes, the, the one of the, one of them, uh, one of the uh, developers had gone on LinkedIn and said like they, uh, they found interesting solutions to like, to, to basically like unblock the costly delays of, uh, of that Boeing would incur um, with, I, I don't, I don't remember what if it was like testing or the software was messed up or whatever, but I'm like, all this seems very sketchy, but also costly as well. Like, I don't know. It, I don't think it's just $9 for that, that one hour, right? How many hours is that person taking up of everyone around them when that code's not properly written?
1: Well, I mean, that, that's part of the problem when we start assigning uh, like costs on a, on a manpower basis right? Like we're looking at developers per hour and what their cost is, but you've got everything else that goes into that, that you're not taking into account. Like I said, I mean, software development is a process. And to Julian's point, all companies nowadays have to be technology companies. If you're not, you're going to suffer. So in in Hertz's case, you know, they thought that they had a partner that was actually going to deliver on that. And I don't know if that was Hertz's or Accenture's fault. That's what they're arguing about in court, but uh, they, I mean, they were basically trying to transition to be a better technology company. Um, And that's, that's what you see across the board. I mean, that's what Walmart has done right from being a strict brick and mortar at one point to actually having technology in their stores and their whole supply chain that made them the the behemoth that they are uh, like, so the the companies that exist nowadays have made that transition, like uh, Julian is saying, and software. I mean, software is eating the world. It controls everything. So if we don't assign the proper values to those developers, it's probably not going to be what we want. Um, yeah, it's well, it's the, interesting to watch. The other point I'll say is that maybe it's not
0: about the money saved on the um the, the so like okay. Part of the article insinuates heavily that the $22 billion they received from various Indian airline or airline, of, uh, yeah, air, air travel companies, like the 22 billion they received. Um, and through the, specifically the Indian military, like they got that, they basically, that's a kickback for like funding these Indian tech companies to like write their, their software. So that's kind of insinuated that basically that $22 billion worth of purchases was just kicked back for, for, for that. So it's, it's like, maybe it's not about how cheap, I mean, maybe it's partly about how cheap the labor is, but also like that, that potential relationship and that conflict there, which is another thing that kind of like to throw on top of all this. One thing that also bothered me as I started to think about it was like, presumably there, you okay? You would hope that there are regulations in place where that software has to be secure, right? But, like, what's the likelihood it is if you have outsourced foreign interests writing code for? And correct me if I'm wrong, Boeing is an American company, right? Like, you yeah. know, that's we have foreign companies writing software. I'm not like trying to imply anything. Uh, especially with our foreign guest on the podcast tonight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just, it's, it just, that makes me feel uncomfortable riding in a plane. I, you know, just because I don't know the ins and outs of it. You know, that's, I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel the same way or we're, if that seems worrisome. I mean, if you can make code that doesn't work, like, you can certainly make insecure or backdoor code, you would think.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, it seems more apparent that kind of thing with um, with China, I guess, is the the obvious one, given that I just read an article this morning um, that was posted in Slack around that they're basically forcing tourists to install text-stealing malware when you enter the country <laughs> and things like that. So it's kind of like, it's a pretty crazy world that we live in at the moment regarding that kind of thing. And you, know, you hear the, the electronics, so like Apple go to very... Uh, far lengths to kind of verify that their silicon is as designed um, and they actually get what they're, what they're expecting back from the the China suppliers and things like that. And no one really talks about this stuff very much, but it's kind of a real threat and it's a real thing. So it's, it's interesting to kind of see how it's all panning out a little bit.
0: No, it's definitely a real threat and a real thing. I mean, um, I know a lot of companies won't, mine included, there are certain countries where if you travel, like you have to bring a Chromebook and a burner phone and throw that away the second you leave that or you know you're going to leave the country. And that's just the way it is. So Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. The whole thing's weird. It makes me uh, I, I, like I distrust big corporations, period, right? I mean, you should. Everybody should have some like healthy concern, but as Julian pointed out, it's not a software company, which makes the fact that software, you know, let's just face it, you know, hundreds of people died because of some, uh, some software failures. It just, yeah, I think you make a good point, Julian, that it's not a software company, but they they kind of have to be, or they have to be.
2: Yeah, it kind of brings up an interesting point around outsourcing in general, because we have a lot of that going on in Australia uh, with other firms that aren't pure software companies. Um, like, especially in the financial industry and that kind of thing, where they they really struggle to, especially from a security perspective, I know we can kind of segue back into security a little bit from this, but um, yeah. yeah, from a security perspective, it's really hard to develop that culture. And, that, you know, if you're having to deal with a new dev from a different country every day and the turnover is pretty high and you can't really get that training in there, you can't really build those relationships. Um, so that, that puts a lot of other kind of problems in place, not just from a security perspective, but uh, yeah, just culturally, it's just really difficult.
0: Well, that's a good segue into <laughs> uh, what you do for a living. So, um, yeah, can you tell us, uh, we'll, we'll just start with what you currently do. You know, I know you're, we we've mentioned it before, you're a principal security engineer at Seek. Um, but I think dev education, some of the things you've learned, some of the experiences and stories you have to share, um, that's what we're really interested to hear tonight, so...
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, like this morning, I guess, I I was actually writing um, what we call RFCs internally at Seek. um, And that was from a post by Riot Games in 2015. And they did a um, presentation at uh, AWS reInvent as well at the time, where they explained this process of taking like a standard. So four years ago, if I created a standard at Seek and said, hey, developers, you need to follow this. Um, I would have got crucified, basically, because, you know, it was an agile company and standards and policies are, um, you know, not a word you can be using lightly. Uh, These days, it's not as bad. But um, the process that I went through to learn how to make it approachable um, by learning from some of these other companies as well has been really interesting to me um, because you kind of essentially it's like, how do you scale uh, security knowledge within the organization, um, especially in product teams? Uh, In a a scalable way. So you have a small team. I know you've mentioned this a few times on your podcast um, around like, you know, you have a small security team, but like so many developers, how do you give them enough one-on-one time, enough direction, enough guidance um, at the right time um, that you can actually do other work and improve other things as well as training and and giving them the the help they need? Um, So I guess there's a lot in that question and a lot in that problem. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there is. And I don't claim to to have solved all of it, but um, some of the methods we've been using have been pretty successful. And I mean, I can talk about a few of them, I guess, but the the RFC process for us over the last two years has been really effective. So that's essentially taking what you'd think of as a standard. So let's say authentication as a standard. Um, We want all devs to be following these kind of standard OAuth flows. We want devs to be like storing passwords like this, blah, blah, like all that kind of typical standard stuff. Um, writing it in a way that kind of presents it as a problem statement, um, kind of a must, should, could, similar to your RFC kind of internet standards. Um, And then as a pull request, you push that out to the technology community and ask for their feedback, see what they think. Does it make sense? Is it achievable? Whatever's written in there. Are there any patterns that we can use um, and build internally to help them achieve these these, these kind of standards? So having that, process in there and it goes through this kind of lengthy process of getting adopted um, from a draft state really helps me personally like understand the technology stacks the problems and be able to empathize with the teams a lot more about what their challenges are Um, because you could just you know sit on your high horse riding all this kind of standards being like yeah you must input validate and do all this kind of stuff but then you realize actually when it comes down to them actually doing that it could be harder for some reasons you don't understand. Um, so, that kind of feedback process via a GitHub pull request in our case, um, was that's been really awesome to see because we have so much uh, people looking through it, reviewing it, helping us improve. And it's not just security standards. This is for just all tech design. So, as much as possible, we try and build things that are re- uh, relevant for the whole engineering community, not just security team. One, because I think uh, the longevity of those kind of projects tend to be a bit more self-fulfilling because people want to use it for engineering, like reliability standards, um, architecture standards and patterns and that kind of thing, rather than just here's a security thing we've created. Um, so that's kind of the, the base level. It makes a bit more sense when you can see it. <laughs> um, so so are these
0: markdown files that, um, yeah, that developers yep. reference? And is there like, so do they, if I'm, do they read it? Is it part of like, um, you know, for instance, internally we have, a 90 day checklist for new developers. And so they have part of that is reading the AppSec standards. Um, is that part of some compulsory sort of uh, process? Or is it just like, I'm putting a new app together. I want to go and build authentication. Where do I, you know, do
2: I go to yeah. this repo and view so the markdown? The searching slash indexing of all of that knowledge, it's really hard just to be like, oh, for us anyway, it's hard to say, hey, a new dev comes along. Here's 30 RFCs. Go read them all. Um, I think that would put anyone to sleep, in my opinion. <laughs> and it's a, bit, it's a bit hard. Like, it's a lot of information there. Some of it's not really relevant to the team that they're going into. If they're, like, a mobile dev versus front-end dev versus a back-end dev, like that kind of thing. Like, it depends what team they're using, what stack they're using. We have a pretty diverse stack as well. Um, so then that's kind of the the foundation, right? So then on top of RFCs, we have things like your tech induction, where we do reference um, things, like, that are important and what things you should be doing and who the team is and all that kind of stuff. So every new developer goes through that two hour tech induction um, for security specifically. It's a two day long thing. Um, But then on top of that, so if a dev's like, okay, I'm starting a new project or I'm starting a new feature or whatever it is that they're trying to do. um, How do you give them that kind of guidance when they need it and only the guidance that's relevant to them? So part of that is actually from a tool that slack open source that where the idea came from for us um, which is called go sdl uh, and they've written a few blog posts about it and and uh, max and kelly have presented about it quite a few times in their team um and that that kind of showed me that you can make it very accessible to do like a simple checklist like you were mentioning ken like a that's probably similar to your 90-day checklist where you're kind of going through, but more from a feature perspective or from a, a new development perspective. So they're trying to do something and it says, hey, and not just for technical engineers, it's also for delivery managers or product managers. Um, so they can actually see all the things that they need to consider uh, within the scope of their product and what they should be thinking about or doing, not just from a security perspective, but you know all the different aspects of product delivery. Um, and it just puts it in a consumable way. It's hard to kind of visualize it unless I show you. But it ends up being basically a Trello board, um, or a list of tasks, or a list list of things to do with checklists in them that link off to the RFCs for more information. Interesting. Oh, nice.
1: So, yeah. So, like you're talking about the RFCs, like the thing that interests interests me in that whole uh, process is the the kind of pattern development that you're doing on top of that, right? Um, it, that that feels to me like a lot of the just-in-time stuff that that you were mentioning that right like if i bu- build a pattern for authentication of or like your the storage of password secrets or whatever it is uh, that's very easy to to show to someone and say hey look you have to use bcrypt or you know pbk df2 and this is the way that we normally do it i like is that is that how you've gone about this is just breaking it down into consumable pieces um
2: Yeah, as much as... Sorry, keep going.
1: No, no, sorry. Yeah, you can go ahead and answer. No, I was going
2: to say, as much as um, we try and keep it... So the the other ways that we try and keep it simple, like I I really um, empathize with developers these days because they have so much to think about when they're building a product. Like the the stack isn't just your application layer anymore. It's the whole thing. So they're responsible, at least at Seek anyway, they're responsible for end-to-end product, including monitoring, alerting, being on call, Uh, reliability, security, architecture, product, and then all all of that stuff is kind of within their remit, if you will. Um, So I guess the other thing is, hey, you've got all these standards. There's there's quite a lot of information in them. And by no means do we have like a lot of 100% coverage on all the things we'd like to cover. um, But we're building this repository as we go. Um, As much as possible, every single requirement within those standards um, is built into common tooling. Or common libraries or common things that um, we're lucky enough to have a a team at C called the PayVo team or Dev Practices or internal tools team, whatever you call it. It's a pretty well known pattern. Um, I think uh, Auth0 just did a bit of a tweet thread about that, which I can link to as well, and their success with that kind of team. Um, So basically, putting as much effort and focusing a lot of our effort from a security perspective into that team um, so they can build most of these requirements in by default so that. When they actually fill out this checklist thing um, to say, hey, are we using these four uh, common tooling that's uh, available to us at Seek, then all of a sudden 20 requirements just disappear from their Trello board. Um, So they don't don't even see that stuff because they don't need to worry about it. Um, So that's kind of the goal. That's uh, definitely not where we're at or we haven't had a lot of experience doing that, but that's kind of based on both Riot and also what Slack have done over the last three or four years, and it seems to work well for them. And we're just trying to improve it and make it work for Seek.
1: Yeah. i yeah, kind of, of taking down, notes. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound very similar to, like you say, Paved Road, but the, the stuff that Netflix does does as well, right? They've got their, uh, their um, AppSec development team that, basically goes out and develops these different pieces and then they say hey if you go do if you use what we're giving you it's going to be easier for you and then you know number one it'll be easier for you but number two it's going to take care of all the security stuff and we won't have to worry as much or we don't have to get involved as much whereas if you go completely custom yeah i'm going to have to know exactly what you're doing with secrets and with passwords. and everything Exactly. Else.
2: Yeah. It's exactly what Travis was talking about um, on your podcast previously around their, their, I don't know what they call it, but their platform as a service kind of thing where you just, um, you know, everything's automated. So from the time at which you need to create a repo all the way through to like um, setting up a AWS account with all the infrastructure you need sorted with all the proper configurations done for you. Um, that's kind of, you just end up being a configuration file that a developer creates and then through some magic and automation. <laughs> um, it just creates this environment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, And that's kind of where we're trying to get to. We're, we're definitely not there yet, um, but we're, we're moving on to that journey because we've seen the successes that people like Netflix and that kind of thing are having with that model. Because um, you're taking that context away, you're putting automation in its place where possible. Uh, and that seems to work pretty well.
1: Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, like you were talking about your intro to d- your tech intro is you said that's two days of security only training or is that, uh,
2: so like, we've, yeah, so we've changed our, we've changed our developer training a little bit over the years. So firstly, it started off as more of a, like a one day course. There was like, mm-hmm. not really OWASP top 10, but it was more like here's all the things that have been coming through our bug banning program. Um, that are most common and kind of consumable or things were found through fan testing and that kind of thing. Um, so that didn't cover everything, but it was just like a whirlwind tour of AppSec at Seek. Um, we found it was pretty hard to schedule them in and a lot of it wasn't relative to what they were doing day to day. So we're trying to move more towards just the tech induction, which is a two hour presentation we we deliver during this kind of period where all these new devs are in a room and we get two hours um, to join in on that conversation. So like, here's a presentation on the security team, how to reach out to us, here's all the docs, here's some references, uh, a little bit about why we care about security, what things can go wrong, so kind of pointing out data breaches and why they're bad and what data we have at Seek that's important to, s- to keep secure, like that kind of basic stuff. Um, so we don't go too much into technical details at that point. Um And then we are running a few lengthier courses for people that are really interested in learning, like even how to pen test internally. One of our team members is working on that course at the moment. Um, So that'll be like a six-week course, two hours every Monday, every second Monday. Um, And they actually get to learn like pen testing, for example, how to pen test their own apps and that kind of thing. So it's more of a security champions uh, program a little bit to get very smaller numbers of people educated and then they can hopefully spread that knowledge. Um, and doing things like internal CTFs, similar to kind of uh, what I've seen Slack and, and Facebook and those kind of companies doing.
1: Okay. So you've dialed back then on that, like one day kind of workshop training for developers from a security perspective to, hey, we've got like this two hour introduction about why security is important. And then you're you're trying to train up other team members as the security experts. Is that, am I understanding that right?
2: Yeah, basically, I mean, it's it's really training is difficult right like i mean you think about how to what are you really that's, trying that's to why achieve? that's why i'm
1: asking yeah. because I, like I, we talk so, to all these different people and i i know like being a trainer you know half the time we get to we get on site with someone and it's like look you know I, especially when i first started like we'd have people in there i'm like teaching the oas top 10 and the guy's like yeah i'm I'm a COBOL mainframe developer and yeah. i'm like i got nothing for you input validation right i yeah. yeah. Seriously, right? So that—that's why I'm I'm, I'm asking—is because it's it's an interesting problem and no one solved it. So.
0: Or they send QA or project managers to the the OWASP Top Ten training. Yeah,
1: yeah,
2: that's true. Yeah, it's hard to get that. I think uh, to me, the training. Uh, actually, first of all, I must admit I've just been a bit lazy with the, the one day training course and haven't organized it yet for the next round of devs. But we—that's <laughs> part of the reason. But the other part is we've been working on some kind of more. Uh, snippets of things that they need to care about at the time. So this checklist thing will be like, hey, make sure you're taking care of XSS. Here's some link outs to like, you know, OWASP resources or internal presentations that talk about that particular vulnerability. Um, So really kind of getting that bite sized, you know, bits of information. And then if they really need more information on top of that, they can start reaching out to us or one of the people that are a bit more security savvy around the business as well. because it's just like, it's a big suck of time doing those kind of OWASP top 10 or those kind of training courses. And they're really important from a cultural perspective. So get building a culture of security and getting devs interested in security, I think that's probably the most beneficial part of any training, to be honest, internally. If you don't, that's where it comes back to outsourcing. It's really hard to, to do that when you, when you have that kind of environment. Um, but we're lucky enough to have mostly uh, permanent slash contractors. They're all permanent. Um, so that seems to be the the biggest benefit because then you get people reaching out to you, being like, "Hey, I accidentally stored a secret in GitHub. Um, what do I do about it?" In a public channel, you know, within our security channel, so everyone can see it. And that, that kind of culture of like blameless um, and having the ability to empower the devs to actually be able to reach out to us like that in a public forum is pretty amazing. And that's kind of what we want to achieve longer term as well. Um, yeah. More so than yeah, I, I guess it's hard because the training the more you push into a public channels the more people read about it in slack threads and that kind of thing so it's kind of like more just in time but then the whole audience gets to see and the more people interested will then read that thread and be like oh i didn't know about this npm vulnerability you know the one we mentioned earlier today or i didn't know about this let's read this thread um and then then also things like every single high and medium rated um, bug banning issue or pen test result or whatever result comes through uh, we make that as public as possible, and we ro- do a massive write-up uh, in, in, like, a geo ticket that goes through how to reproduce it, what the risks are, what the vulnerability looks like, um, and then post that in a very well-monitored production channel. Um, and you get a lot of people looking at um, and reading through that issue at the time. So it could be, like, server-side request forgery, um, you know, metadata URL, all that kind of stuff, or, you know... Those kind of issues that, and that's where you get the attention, and you can kind of attach like a mini slide deck or attach some resources to that Jira ticket, um, and then it becomes more applicable and more people are interested in it because it's something that's actually affected us. You know, other, yeah, I, I, could, I could go on about, about this. It's pretty.
0: <laughs> no, I'm thinking <laughs> about this one because we have. So we get when we get our um, when we get our hacker one bugs in our bounty submissions are um, we already have it tied into a a channel that's just for like AppSec team members, you know, triaging bounty issues. Then separately, we also have like, I mean, we, we write up, we have an automatic, we've, we've chat ops up so that we have, we immediately are able to like, if we want to open an issue in the correct repository, we can like do that, right? We can, can run a command about the bug bounty that came in and, send it, create an automatic, like autom- automatically populated issue. Of course we always like have to go in and give context and all that stuff. But like, yeah, cause now I'm thinking it would be kind of cool to be able to do that to like, if something became uh, like, I don't know about during the, not during, but like afterwards, after it's been, and also we have a bounty website. So I'm like, there's, there's definitely a way for us to to to, to take note of of kind of making that like Hey, this was like something that the reason I'm saying this is we actually just did training um, last week, walking through the top, like bug bounties uh, or bug bounty submissions, like the highest paid ones. So it's already like, we're trying to make that visible, but I hadn't thought about this, like creating a, creating a, um, some sort of like public display in a Slack channel. Not like you said, blame, like you're not blaming anybody. You're just saying like, Hey, this is interesting. And that was the approach we took. Is like, this is actually interesting stuff. Like you might be it might be worth the 10 minute or five minute read, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. I I mean, you think about how we are as developers or like even as like a security consultant, right? One of my favorite things to do is get a hold of another consulting firm's report, right? And it's not because I want to necessarily bag on what they did or what they found, but it's more of, hey, you know, Am I like, am I doing the right thing? And I and I think this is what a lot of the developers doing in that situation is you're looking at it and you're saying, huh, is this something that I've thought about? Is it something that I need to be concerned about? Like that this code or there's something else that I'm doing in my daily life that maybe I can improve. Right? It's it's the same reason that we we like we're all on Twitter and we're all reading about different vulnerabilities that are out there. So why not internalize that? Like I like that idea. I don't know how to affect that change as a consultant, but you guys that are internal, it feels like, you know, having some sort of a public channel or a public way to be like, hey, guess what? Every every month, we just send out a, a newsletter that says these are the top ten bug bounty items that we saw. Here's the write ups on them, uh, just to give people some sort of a feedback or developers some sort of a window into what the what you're dealing with seems like an easy win. I, I mean, it's going to take some time. But it does seem like an easy win to at least integrate that security culture in inside the development teams
2: I mean, yeah, I think it's I a brilliant idea yeah, I was going to say it does it does depend a little bit on the organization because we're pretty lucky to have a pretty open organization and a culture of like a blameless culture. but if you go into like a larger organization or a, an organization with a lot higher risk tolerance um or lower risk tolerance, I should say. <laughs> um, they, they tend to not enjoy people making public some of this kind of information, even internally. I've spoken yeah. to a lot of, you know, financial in- institutions and things like that. So for those kind of companies, uh, I was lucky enough just to kind of, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> just to yeah, kind of just do it. it. And, you know, we made our, our bug banning alerts channel um, public to the whole company so anyone can kind of join that channel if they want to see a stream of live vulnerabilities th- flowing through our systems. Um, that you know no one's pushed back yet on that. so <laughs> I guess we'll see maybe after this podcast I might get someone on to... um, <laughs> that that's helped tremendously because then people can actually see hey, there's actually things in our systems and it's like they can see the things are a little bit on fire. Um, they can see the triage process, they can see how we fix it, they can see how we write up the issues. And then you start to get these people, and not everyone's in that channel, right? Like there's only like 20 people, even though we've made it public. Um, and those people that are in there are really keen and they're kind of learning from it and getting more involved in security initiatives. Like going back to the process I was talking about before, uh, one thing we're doing, like say there's a, we're, we're using Docker, for example, and we've got this kind of sidecar model. And there's this tooling that will, uh, you know, orchestrate the, the sidecars in a way that you can actually have like, now, it doesn't really matter what language the service is in because we have quite a few different languages at Seek uh, and, that, and that has presents its own challenges. Um, but regardless of the language now, we can deploy this Docker container as a sidecar, which is, um, in, in our case, for logging or for authentication. Um, and that's written in one language that's done once. And now all teams can utilize that one uh, sidecar, for example, in in authentication that basically adheres to the standard I was talking about before, like the RFC standard, um, and also contains all the different use cases and has been a bit more heavily vetted. And I know a lot of talk- companies talk about getting alerted when a repo that's super sensitive changes. And then uh, uh, I think you've talked about a little bit at GitHub as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and that seems to be pretty effective, but getting that kind of consolidated uh, standard or like, you know, tool or library or whatever that everyone is using is quite a difficult task in itself Um, when you have a a very diverse stack as well like most companies tend to
1: yeah
0: i mean that's one of the that's one of the bigger issues with like creating a paved path um when you've when you're trying to and this goes back to like the whole idea of outsourcing and the difficulty there i mean and the different you mentioned julian the, the different demographics of companies and like there are companies that you're going to find a hodgepodge of different, like, and you mentioned it, Seth, like you might have stuff as far back as like Cobol mixed in with Java or node. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a difficult process. So like Julian, how are you seeing that, that uptick then? Right. Like you've got those people in the Slack channel, uh, like, how long have you been trying to kind of foster this openness? Um, and then what, it, what what have the results been so far? I mean, it sounds like some of those people are engaging in other security uh, like in initiatives, but can you speak to kind of what it is?
2: Um, so I'd say there's probably like... Uh, over, uh, I've definitely seen an improvement over the last few years, um, with all the kind of presentations we do, we do like kind of, uh, hack and seek sessions. We talked about like drone security the other day, one of the guys in our team, um, did that and we invite, you know, whoever wants to join. Um, so it's kind of like these really ad hoc kind of more sessions designed to get more people interested in security. Um, we make sure we do recognize when people contribute to a security project, um, A good example would probably be that sidecar I was talking about that wasn't developed, actually, by anyone in the team. Um, We contributed to it, obviously, but that was actually done from another person, another dev at Seek. And they've contributed to several other projects to do with, like, service-to-service authentication, and they kind of run that now, and we don't even touch that from a security perspective almost. Um, So there's a lot of these kind of projects that are happening, especially in the paved road team now, um, where we're starting to get a lot of that, uh, built in because they get security because like, they have kind of over the hurdle. It's no longer an extra thing they have to do. Um, so I'd say that's probably like 10% to 20% of all um, developers at Seek are probably fitting in that kind of category. Maybe 5% are like really keen to to kind of um, get involved and, and do a lot of, uh, we call it magic time, you know, time outside of their regular day to kind of get involved and learn. Um, and then the rest of the community, there's probably like 30 or 40% that just get security and they're happy to kind of, um, within reason, obviously, uh, fix, you know, vulnerabilities in their dependencies or fix things as we, f- we find visibility in their products. Um, but there still is that kind of lagging percentage of people or teams that that aren't quite on board or they have got a lot of legacy to deal with. And it's really hard for them to to put security work on top of that because they're trying to get all their tech debt. Um, sorted first which you know they might have been neglecting for some time Can yeah. you say um, magic
0: time do you, yeah is yeah. that, is that a- i want to is that included why i'm asking is i'm i'm at i'm asking if that's like an included piece of the work day or work week or if that's like outside of work hours or what that what
2: that is it's it's <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a term secreted or not, but essentially it's it's not really your 20% time that you have at Google and other companies where it's official time allocated to do whatever you want to work on. Um, it's more like, hey, we're going to do a lunch hack or we're going to you know, do something during our lunchtime or I finished all the work I was going to do today. I'm going to sneak in an extra few hours here and there on a Friday afternoon because um, I've done what I need to do. So it's kind of like on top of your day-to-day work and it's something that you're passionate about um, and, if, and then we also have, like, hackathons, I guess, twice a year. So it's, like, three days where you can work on whatever you want. Um, so that's our kind of compromise for your 20% time instead of doing that. Um, so a lot of these projects start there and they get really, um, like, they get grown there and, and then they continue on throughout the year um, in magic time. And there's a lot of projects like that where they're just not funded or they need to be proven the value of and you need to spend a bit of time either outside of work or... Um, but yeah, it's not really considered, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't have magic time. It should be considered regular, normal work. Um, and there should be a formal process to go through, to get an idea through to actually becoming formal work. Um, and we do have a similar process, but sometimes it's just easier to just get it done. And we have some passionate people about certain topics and they'll just do it because they love it.
0: Yeah. I was trying to figure out because that's something we've, we've had uh, discussed on the podcast was you know, having security as part of like, if we want developers to spend time on it, like we, we need to have that be a, a part of like their um their, which what am I trying to say? Reviews, like they're part of their like assessment as an employee. Like if, if for instance, if somebody spends, you know, like, we'll say 20 hours and a quarter on like building something like that and it wasn't maybe formal work, you know, and it's during the magic time, you know, does that end up being financially, you know, a positive for them? I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I'm not sure how each company does it. Like, you know, I don't know if they get rewarded for that, like, or if it's just, you know, that's like you said, the reward is that people are really psyched to do that. And so they just do it like it's the culture.
2: It really depends on, I think, partly, at least at Seek, like the manager, how much they see that work providing value to the rest of the org or their team. Um, financially, I think it's just yet another thing that they can put into their like professional skills development and things that they've, you know, because we have like passion to, towards our customers and, and internal people as well. So there's a lot that you could put in from that perspective. Um, so I think it wouldn't be hard to justify it, but I don't think there's a formal Kind of process we are we do have i'm not sure if you've seen i'm not sure if you have seen something similar um at github or, uh i know like uh, medium released this growth framework for engineers um which basically goes through all the different little elements that they care about from their engine like so it's very similar to that conversation of like quantifying how good a developer is um, or an engineer is and all the different aspects to their role that the, the business cares about all the way from technical to cultural to stakeholder management to like people growth like are they mentoring people all that kind of stuff and it goes into very granular um attributes to say has this engineer shown this thing and, and then here's an, a few examples of what that looks like um, very sm- very simple terms and it's a bit uh broad but it gives you an indication then you get a score out of it basically and then you can start rating people and what we're, we're trying to introduce something similar at seek And I was lucky enough to get involved in that project because they reached out to me. Um, Probably another benefit of building solid relationships internally, which is something I've discovered, you get involved in a lot more of these conversations up front. Um, But we added a security element to that. So now there's all this kind of stuff where it's like if you're a level five, for example, which is the highest level engineer. Um, you could demonstrate that you're influencing security across the organization instead of just within your team. Um, so if you're contributing to, and then some of the examples are like developing a seek or uh, sidecar, right? Or developing something that scans secrets in GitHub or whatever it is that they want to contribute to that is usable by the whole, uh, all of the product teams. Um, so it's actually formally documented in that in that process. But that's yet to be kind of pushed out a little bit Um within sake yet. So it's still in draft.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, like I'm not certain that, um, find like, a uh, going back to the like developer incentive that like finance, like a financial gains even. Cause I think Seth, was it, you and I read the same, some of the same books. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm asking you, was it drive? I think it was maybe drive. Drive. Yeah. First drive where They yeah. talked about
1: where, in, yeah,
0: yeah intrinsic it's not like motivation, intrinsic motivation, no, no, no. Go, yeah, go ahead. Like, uh, yeah, it was like intrin- intrinsic motivation is often like once. What was it like the f- financial? Once like financial.
1: Yeah, so, so it's like-
0: financial needs are met or something like that. Yeah,
1: that once you once you hit a certain threshold uh, in your salary and in kind of your daily life, and it covers all of your needs and your wants. At that point. Throwing more money at engineers and at, at, at people is almost is it backfires, right? You want to have them intrinsically motivated to go out and do like what Julian is saying, right? Hey, you've got magic time. I'm, I'm interested about this. I'm going to go do this because it's good for me. And it's good for the company. And if you if the company pays for it, and actually goes out and rewards it, at that point, it's just another item on their to do list, right? And you lose that intrinsic motivation to go and discover new things. It's 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 a kind of a strange balance um, that they found, right? That that's all that it is. Is it's just yeah. this kind of strange, you know? And it's about being like happy in your job, and so there's there's all sorts of other things that go into it. Yeah, there is a
0: line there, right? Because sometimes you hear. Oh,
2: sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, Julian. Oh, that's right. I was gonna definitely recommend that book. So you keep going. I've got a few points on that too.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, I was just gonna say there's that line where it's like um uh, between where, like you said, you know, there's that fostering the, the intrinsic motivation and providing the time for it, and then you know, abusing it. Um and to be clear, this is just uh, this isn't I'm just like kind of just thinking uh out loud here. I'm I'm just like, you know, there's certainly that um yeah, there's certain that certainly is that line between having like passionate folks and then how you hear, you know, people say passionate and as in like work 80 hours and just because you're like passionate about my company. Um, but yeah, like fostering, so it's, I guess it comes down to culture. I mean, I think it, it always comes down to culture. In fact, I think during Seth, one of our first few episodes, we talked about this where we're like, if you, you like where you where you decide to work and and what you go for is like gonna it's gonna determine a lot about your your trajectory and you should really be careful and if you're thinking like i don't know this isn't for me probably just back out and find somewhere where the the culture seems right oh okay i see you actually
2: uh post that link yeah per, yeah drive cool
0: uh, sorry, Julian, you, what was the point you were going to... You said you had a couple points on that note.
2: Uh, I was just going to say, I'm actually... I almost finished reading that book right now. Uh, sorry, listening to it, I should say, on, on Audible. Um, so definitely recommend it. It was really enlightening to see some of the research that they went into to, to actually prove the different types of motivation, like the carrot stick and then the intrinsic motivation as a separate third one, which no one knew about until they did some of that research a, a long time ago. Um, it's just It just all made sense, but it was just obvious. And a lot of people in security that I talk to tend to focus on the carrot um, or the stick, mostly the carrot. And then they think they're doing a good thing by focusing on, I don't know if that's a, a terminology you guys are aware of. Is that yeah, a carrot stick. Yeah, cool, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's not
0: like a special ask. Awesome yeah.
2: <laughs> I have to check because like some of the stuff we come up with is just stupid. Um, so you have to the just- edgy uh, might, me, The veggie
1: mite, the kangaroo. I don't know. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's, there's all <laughs> you know this these terms. We, like, I, yeah. Didn't you
0: send us- la- what didn't you or i don't know if it was you who sent somebody sent a list of like the terms and it was hilarious i was like oh that's actually good to know it's like really helpful to know the the list of terms they are like there's a bunch of them and i would have not guessed any of them yeah there's
2: definitely a few simpsons episodes as well and and things (laughs) like that plenty of that kind of stuff um but yeah that was just really interesting to to hear that and i think the important thing that stood out to me is the carrots and sticks don't work longer term. So if you really want to yeah. succeed with security and pushing security into a company, um, you really have to use intrinsic motivation because that's like really the only long-term uh, thing because as soon as you start turning off the tap to like giving people more money or giving them rewards, they'll just stop doing it. Um, and likewise with the, carrot, uh, the, the stick, if you keep penalizing people and forcing people to do things, um, they'll just stop doing it as soon as they don't have to. Um, so that intrinsic motivation is something that I'm pretty passionate about, but it, uh, it comes back to like having that culture, right? And if you don't have the ability to empower and build that culture and those relationships, I think, I mean, I might be proved wrong, but I, th- I feel like that's like a disaster waiting to happen if you're trying to do intrinsic motivation. And a lot of companies have that outsourcing problem and, and I just can't see that happening. Uh, just, yeah, if you're a consultant working in a different country for $9 an hour, for example, coming back to Boeing. Uh, I don't think you're going to be yeah. intrinsically motivated to do the right thing for that company. You know?
0: No, I've thought, I've, I've thought about this when we were talking about it, actually. It's funny you bring it up because, you know, like Seek, GitHub, um, it, like it, a lot of the companies we've had on here, Segment, Netflix, um, like those developers are the things I see anyways, when when we talk about like bug bounty submissions, they like the majority. And again, talking about libraries that make things secure. um, We have that right. So like a lot of the things that we kind of have a lot of the base level stuff covered. So when we do get bug bounty submissions, and often it's something that is like fairly complicated and interesting. And that's Going back to like the training that we gave where we walked through some of those bug bounty submissions, like they they sometimes are, I don't know where I'm going with this, but they are sometimes like super interesting. But going back to like the um uh the you know the developer quality, on the flip side of that, I've been a part of um so like Seth and I worked at Fishnet. So I've done consulting for, and I'm not saying it was at Fishnet, I'm just saying I've done consulting and um some of those companies they do outsource like we've seen shitty mobile apps from companies that were outsourced overseas to do mobile apps. We've seen same thing for web apps and it's not just outsourced. Um, Sometimes it's a, it's a mix and sometimes it is a company whose culture is they, it's clear like the boat, like it was made clear to the senior engineers at Boeing that, you know, they're not super valued and there's not a lot of time put in um, for like giving them for like, or funds for like go Go get some training, or like whatever you know, whatever like perks that should be there, um, they're just not there. So like, yeah, my point being is there's there's like those those I don't know how to fix it for for the companies that aren't like Seek and aren't like GitHub and don't hire like you know the top notch um, developers that we all have. I don't know how to fix that for how how do you foster uh, how do you cultivate um, that intrinsic. You know, motivation inside of a company like that. No idea, Seth. You guys, You guys, <laughs> Seth, you guys <laughs> you crack this egg.
1: If I or could, I'm sure it would be worth work. quite a bit of money.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I,
1: yeah. It, it's just like because like we always we hear go. training,
0: right? We always hear yeah. training, like for for those companies specifically. Um, yeah. And what but type of training I, does it end up being? I,
1: oh. It's compliance training. It's checklist training, right? It's not. It's Scorm oh, it, compliant. Yeah, yeah, it's Scorm compliant training.
2: Actually, I heard um I heard a really good story about this. Um, so there was an outsourced company working for a financial institution. I won't give out too many details. Um, but basically, they tried to train the developers, right, doing like OWASP Top Ten or whatever it was, and they pushed out this training module. Um, and they worked out that. Uh, you know, 30 to 50 of these developers and they're in a different country. Um, What they did was instead of getting everyone to fill it out, they actually got one really good person over there to fill it out and then everyone else copied the results. And the submission times were like bang on like the same time, basically, or the same around the same time and the exact same results. So even when you try and push out, that kind of compliance training in this environment Yeah. anyway i just think it's it's just
1: total all the
2: way down you know
1: yeah never (laughs) underestimate you know people that are under pressure to deliver things and the the ingenuity that they will have to actually get around something that they they see as invaluable or like not as invaluable as you know as worthless right um i mean ken and i had this discussion quite a bit at one point we built like a training like a training platform and that was one of the things that we were worried about is like hey we're having developers fix code why wouldn't they just go in and do like a git you know a you know a git branch and actually see what the other branches that were already fixed and just copy and paste that right in like we had to jump through so many hoops (laughs) to prevent people from cheating right um because people are like yeah people would do it
0: right but we would tell people because they'd be like, well, what, what's your foolproof plan for that? We're like, we don't have one. Like there's not a yeah. foolproof way. People will, if they don't like, if they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. The foolproof do it. plan doesn't exist. All you can do is probably give like, you know, again, like good training, right? Some stuff that I guess that people would, would want to take. But if you don't give that magic, you know, going back to the 20% time or the magic time or whatever it is, you know, if you don't, if you're under like Seth mentioned, if you're under a lot of pressure and there's deadlines to hit and there's, you know, like no time for that always. And you're always under the gun. I mean, it's just you're going to I mean, ask Boeing, it's, you know. It's a,
1: <laughs> well, I, I, shit know. Show, I mean, so. the, the intrinsic motivation is interesting. Like I, I, I find personally, like since I read that book, it's easier to actually identify that like in me personally. Right. As a consultant. there may be like these super cool projects that are coming in, but like once you've tested, you know, a hundred web apps, it's really hard to get excited about testing the hundred and first one, right? Even though you know the process, you know what's going to happen, you know, uh, like it's all there, but that intrinsic motivation, even though that's what's paying my bills, it's very (laughs) difficult to to get excited about it. It just is, right? It, It takes, it feels like a slog uh, even if it's an app I haven't seen before, even a, even if it's a technology I haven't like, I have to find other ways to kind of trick myself to be like, "Hey, this is interesting, and there is something new here that you know I can pull from it that maybe I haven't in the past, right?" Um, but like, without being able like, I have a hard time identifying that for myself, and so I like I don't know how to push it out to other people, right? Outside of giving them some time and saying, "Hey." go for it and figure out what's interesting to you. You know, I, like there, there, there's no magic formula outside of magic time. Apparently. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, we should get one of those, uh, one of those consultant those uh, productivity, corporate productivity consultants on and they can, they can maybe okay. share secrets <laughs> for that. So.
1: I, I'm going to make Julian a shirt that just says it's magic time, right? It's magic it's time, right. Magic time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know what? When we show up in Australia, expect That's you're going to have a magic
2: time Julian shirt. Sure. You, you've had it. You've had it on live. So you, you got to follow through now, Ken.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs>
2: it's happening.
0: You heard
1: it here first. First, man, that sounds like a great t-shirt, like for the next absolute app absolute t- t-shirt. I know <laughs> it's, it's magic, magic time. time. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, sweet. Um, yeah, Julian. We've been going for uh, yeah over an hour at this point. We didn't even get into your background, man.
2: No, we didn't. That's okay. I'm gonna carry that. <laughs> man, um, yeah. Uh, we, yeah. How, how much time we got? I mean, we can talk about uh, appsec Day a little bit, or we can talk about yeah. uh, um, something else to talk about, like around gates and that kind of thing. So it's up to you. Like, what do you want to focus on?
0: Yeah, let's talk about appsec Day.
2: All right. Um, well, obviously, you both will be there, which is awesome. Uh, Second time this year. Yay! We just announced the talks, and I'm actually really excited about the lineup this year. It's uh, blown my mind how many people have uh, submitted and and agreed to talk. Uh, It involved a lot of wrangling from lots of different people on the review board and myself to reach out to all these awesome people. Um, Yeah, but I'm, like, really stoked. We got, like, a whole day, and there's four streams of talks, like it's yeah. And then eight training courses this year, which is crazy.
1: Nice.
2: Um, so it's all kind of happening, but, uh, yeah, it'd be good to kind of see it all eventuate. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it actually this year, but it, it is a fair bit of work at the moment. So <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, no, lagging we are behind. It. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. We loved it last year. And like, um, I actually, I don't know if I told you, but, um, after, oh gosh, why am I blanking on his name? I, I cause it's after 11 o'clock at night. I'm old. This is late. Um yeah, was it Max? I want to say Max from Slack. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, is, why am I forgetting? That's the name of my son, so I don't know why i Anyways.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, so I reached out to him afterwards to get some tips and pointers based off his uh, like how to, you know, how to run a CTF or his um, experiences running a CTF, both like by outsourcing to another company and also like, uh, uh, you know, running it themselves. So uh, yeah, it was awesome from that perspective. Um, like, yeah, it's very useful, practical. I think that's, I think that's something like we should definitely note is that it's a very, especially for software developers um, and like internal appsec folks, it's very, focused on um, like prevention, solutions, um, interesting things around that.
2: Yeah, yeah. definitely not targeted too much towards the offensive side. We do have three or four topics around offensive uh, techniques and then also some around the blue teaming kind of IR perspective, which I think is important for devs as well to really understand, given that at least in a lot of organizations, they're in charge of their whole stack and monitoring and that kind of thing. Um, but we try and focus a lot on just what would a developer want to know, but also then, you know, I'm a bit biased. I'm a security professional. I want some awesome talks as well. So <laughs> we try and cater for both. It's pretty hard sometimes. Um, but one thing we don't really do a lot of is do the 101 kind of talks because I feel like we can probably just outsource that to the you know the internet a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, the great thing that like we found last year was that that I mean just the sheer number of developers that you got at AppSec Day, uh, like in the States, honestly, we do not see that, right? Like at the security conferences, we'll see some, but like the the high percentages, like did, did you ever get numbers on how many of your attendees are developers versus security professionals?
2: A um, ballpark, because we actually during the keynote, or just before the keynote, we got everyone to put their hands up um, if they don't work in security. Basically, um, and I think it was around seventy percent didn't work that's, in security. That's um, crazy. That's, like, that's yeah, awesome. It's, <laughs> it's it's great. Cause that's one of our goals. It's one of my goal, my personal goals. Um, preaching to the choir, like security professionals, doesn't really help a lot. We really need to like solve the problem where where it is, which is the people creating the software in the first place. Um, and that's kind of one of my big motivations to running AppSec Day um, and also the the OOS Melbourne meetup. Um, is really just to get yeah. You know, a lot of conferences do tend to focus a lot on security professionals, um, which is important, and we definitely need those conferences as well. Um, but I'm trying to get a bit of a mix of both and, and heavy towards the developer. And there's quite a few things we did to get that metric. Yeah. Um, so how did started. how
1: did how did you do that? Like that that was going to be my next question. What was it that you did?
2: So yeah, a few things. Um, the first thing is we kept the ticket price to 100. 150 bucks, um, Australian, which is like nothing for when you look at the talks we have coming up for this event, like it's crazy, really low price, to be honest, um, compared to a lot of the AppSec global events that are in in the thousand mark for a ticket. Um, and I'm not sure about other conferences, but, um, they tend to be a bit higher in, in the cost range and a lot of people can't make it because of that. Um, and then also we definitely make sure we do it during a weekday because, Uh, we started AppSec Day the first year was on a weekend and we worked out that a lot of engineers just couldn't take the time off. Uh, One, because they had family commitments and things like that, but also because it's not their day job. So forcing them to come on a weekend was a little bit harsh. Um, So we changed it to like a a weekday, obviously. So that was another thing. And then the other thing we do is reach out to people on Twitter um, that are in the development community, reach out to meetup groups around Australia that are development focused, um, and encouraging them to turn up um, and doing a lot of outreach, I guess, f- on social media re- relating that. A lot of the marketing and a lot of the advertisement is focused around this is a developer conference, even though it's you know also designed for security professionals. We try and say developer first and then security. So the, the language, I guess, of the conference is very much around that. Um, and then we also spend some of our budget on marketing, like ad campaigns and things, specifically targeting those audiences. Um, because a lot of the devs, it's hard to reach them um, because a lot of our networks as a team uh, and around the security industry are security people, not developers. So it's hard to kind of get that reach uh, without kind of spending a bit of money sometimes and and doing a lot of outreach in different places. So it's pretty, which social, it's pretty difficult.
0: Yeah. Which social social media platform do you have better luck with um, when it comes to reaching out to software developers? I have my guess, but, but I'm curious. Uh,
2: to be honest, I think it's, uh, Twitter is probably our our main one um, LinkedIn doesn't really work as well because a lot of the people that my network connects with aren't developers <laughs> I got <laughs> quite a few at seek obviously and I've got a background in dev so I got some uh, knowledge there and I guess I have some connections around the industry uh, that can help promote it a little bit um, but yeah it's, it's really difficult and a lot of the meetups is probably the best place but it, A lot of times the meetup groups don't like advertising for these kind of things because it gets a bit spammy for them as a meetup owner i know that already (laughs) that's the case so then you have to tend to go to the meetups and that's a lot of effort so there's a lot and go to devs i I presented a lot of developer conferences i tend to not present at security conferences that much anymore um and for that reason to kind of get that knowledge out to them um, to where they are and then advertise it during the talk and get them interested um, so I've done that a few times this year and, and last year as well. Are you coming back stateside,
0: by the way, speaking of, because I remember last year you came to AbSec USA in California. And uh, um, I think that was, I think you said you tried to make it back to the states. Was it every year or was it once in a while?
2: Yeah, I try to. I think um, there's a lot to learn from that, those kind of conferences, especially in Australia, are a little bit behind sometimes. So it's really good to hear what the latest and greatest tech companies are doing. And then you can kind of... Uh, yeah, so I'll be most likely, you know, 90-plus 90, 90 percent likely going to AppSec USA again this year. Oh, sorry, uh, Global AppSec DC. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> there you <go>. okay. And <laughs> um, and maybe DevSecon in Seattle. So I'm, that's still pending. But, uh, yeah, that'll be around September. So I'm keen to... S- you guys are going to one... Are you going to Global? Yeah, you'll be there because you're doing the training. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, also, yeah. I live here, so ah, let me know cool. if you're coming to uh, to DC.
2: Yeah, sweet. Yeah, I'll definitely be at DC. That's my priority. So, yeah. Awesome, sweet. That's great. Um, we'll definitely link up. Cool. cool. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I think. Um, no, yeah, we're looking for. It.
1: Okay. Yeah, we're looking forward to AppSec Day again. Uh, I was pretty excited to throw the hat in the ring again and you know ma- make the trip down. So looking forward to it.
2: Yeah, uh, I think we're going to have a decent crowd this time as well. So I think um, I'm going to have to. Work. I got. Uh, I hope everyone stays for the after party. Let's put it that way. I got we've got a fair bit of budget sitting on the minimum spend of the uh, the drinks. So if if no one turns up, we're just going to open bar. it. I think I've already promised <laughs> a few of the speakers some whiskey. Um, so Absolutely. to, to tempt them into coming to, to Melbourne. So, um, yeah, we'll have to have a, a bit of a party afterwards, which would be good because the actual event is alcohol free. So yes, mainly cost related, yeah. but also just, I prefer it that way as well. Not that, I'm um, yeah. yeah, anyway,
0: no, 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 that's, <laughs> we've had, we've had guests on and that's been a big thing, uh, you know, as of recently is making people feel a little bit more comfortable and a little bit safer and a little less. It's because some people don't even you know, drink for whatever reasons, religious or otherwise. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely been a thing. So I totally understand.
2: Yeah. yeah. And also that. selfishly as a conference organizer, it's kind of like, I don't need any more fuel to the fire <laughs> to create more potential incidents um, yes. during the day. So <laughs> very good call. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I am
0: looking forward to those croissants too. <laughs> was,
2: oh yeah croissants good. were yeah. amazing i mean one amazing. thing melbourne's uh known for is food that's for sure there's a large variety of food so yeah it's a good oh city gosh the best argentinian steakhouse i've ever been to was there
0: so yeah great <laughs> yeah. city i mean honestly it was be- I, we, we not to not to talk shit about sydney but <laughs> we went to sydney after melbourne and i was like i don't want to go back to my- my whole family, we, they were like, let's go back to Melbourne. That was better. So I'm not even kidding. Like they, they were like, we did the picture with the, the opera house. And then we're like, we can get out. We can leave. So you, know, you might lose, list, you
2: but, might yeah. lose some Sydney side subscribers after that comment. Oh, <laughs> there's a, there's yeah. always a bit of a rivalry between the two cities. It's it's pretty funny from that perspective, like livability and, you know, weather differences <laughs> and how close to the beach they are versus, you know, like all this kind of stuff. It's that, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm biased. So Yeah, no, it was
0: just, uh, Melbourne was just an easier to get around city. It was beautiful. It was, you know, good food. So, um, also I don't care if we lose people. So (laughs) 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 Oh, well. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, cool. Hey, I, wow. Like, I feel like we could still go for another hour, obviously like we won't. Um, but yeah, like this was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Having Same. you on,
1: and you yeah, know uh, maybe, maybe maybe when we get down there, like we'll have to see if we can you know do something live or you know maybe do a mini episode or something like that from the conference. I think it'd be fun. We've talked yeah, about actually, it. before
2: um, I was actually kind of thinking I was going to um email you guys, but we may as well do it live on on the site. <laughs> 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 um, uh, we could even,
1: pressure?
2: Yeah, we could even do a live stream of the the panel at the end of the day if if we're keen. So let's um chat about that. That would be let's, amazing. That'd be yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, it'd, be, it, it'd fit right in. So yeah, let's talk about it. That'd be good.
0: Yeah, we keep talking about doing it. And like the most we've, I think LocomocoSec from 20, what it? 20, 2018, April 28, I think it was April 2018 for sec. That was the only one we actually ever got to, I think. I think. We, we didn't yeah. do any other ones from conferences, right?
1: No, most of it has been me sitting in a hotel room somewhere. That's been super <laughs> fun too. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that was you and justin sitting at the beach <laughs> not listening to me yeah that was hey,
0: fun I, and you know what's <laughs> funny is you know what's funny is you didn't go again <laughs> I <know>. you didn't <laughs> go again
2: it's a logo it's logo sec, so it's my,
1: it's my, maybe 2020 it's my is my the year fault. you yeah. get it together so is there a saying, yeah. Hawaii? <laughs> yeah
2: I was going to say, maybe I should just turn up to locomotive. It's like halfway to the U S for us anyway. So I think I know it's I easier, right?
0: What's yeah. that? A seven or probably,
2: probably, like seven triple, hour flight? probably triple the amount of cost, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> just half, half the flight time. So it's all good. <laughs>
1: we'll Sounds Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Julian, thanks again for joining. Um, it's been great to see you again and, catching up. We're looking forward to seeing you in DC and in Melbourne later this year. Uh, remind us again how people can get in touch with you if they've got questions about OpSec Day or anything.
2: Um, probably Twitter is probably the best option. I'm pretty google if you just type my name in. it should come up with Twitter and a few other links. So my OpSec is pretty bad from that perspective.
0: <laughs> I'm putting in your uh, a link to your Twitter uh, page now so that people can reach out.
2: Cool. That's done. Yeah. Super honored to, to get invited onto the show. So I appreciate the invite.
1: Yeah, no problem. No. Uh, yeah. It's been great. Um, so yeah, I, I like, I'm not sure Ken, as far as the upcoming episodes, I think we've got some scheduling to do. Yeah, I've got, I've got <laughs>
0: specifically some people I need to respond to. And I apologize. I've been traveling uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. So um,
1: uh, and We do have some interesting stuff uh, like uh, Jerry Gamblin, his VulnerableContainers.org, uh, should, which should be interesting. He wants to come talk about that. But there's three or four others that I know uh, will be on in the next couple of months, like over the summer. Uh, so watch the Twitter account uh, or join the Slack channel Either way, you can always find me and Ken. DMs are open on Twitter um, or you can join Slack to talk to us. But I appreciate everybody listening today. Ken, anything else? Uh, There was, oh, there was a CFP that was closing
0: soon. And I wanted to mention, I can't remember who it's for. Well, if I've remembered, I'll put in the details uh, or the description of this video.
1: Okay, cool. (laughs) All right.
0: All right, take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. And uh, Julian, don't, Jump off just yet. Um, All right. Have a good night.